Uh, yeah, that uh, that's funny that Tim put it that way. It's it's uh, because I'm pretty sure that I'm winning our our uh, back and forth games of 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 one on one. Actually, I grew up across the street from the old Church of the Brethren uh, or the old uh, Parker Ford Church in the uh, Red Cape Cod. Ray Willauer was was our neighbor, and uh, I played with Greg Willauer all the time and whatnot. But there was a basketball hoop there in the parking lot. Still is. Uh, I drove by it this morning just to check it out, and. Uh, uh, so every Tuesday night was Tuesday night Bible study, and the Deerings, Jay and Carol, would go to Tuesday night Bible study, and Tim would come, and he and I would play one-on-one for three to five hours um, outside there, and we did keep track, and uh, I, I do think that Tim might be up a game or two right now in, in our in our competition, but uh, that's all right. The, uh, the level of affection that I have for Parker Ford Church is very, very high. I used to go to game night on Wednesday nights. Back in the day, uh, I, I used to go to vacation Bible school, and it was just—it's just been great uh, to have a continuing relationship. All the, from the time we moved in, I was five years old, and uh, and your old church parking lot was my playground. It was just just beautiful. So I'm really honored and privileged uh, to be here with you and um, and to bring the word together. Um, which, speaking of which, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah today, uh, chapter eight. concept we're going to be talking about um, today is uh, is how to change. Um, and we're going to be talking about this from, like Josh said, from a, a paradigmatic standpoint. In other words, looking at a structure, um, a, a way that the scriptures express themselves to us um, that come against, I think, a, a bad paradigm that we oftentimes adopt as Christians. So I think that we think about change like this Whereas God wants us to think about change like this. We've uh, gotten into some false concepts and some, I think some bad definitions of what it means for us to walk in change um, as opposed to how God lays it out for us in the scriptures, um, which, which we'll look at today together. Um, so Nehemiah chapter 8. And the people, this is verse 1, the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and here we go on a, on a fun little trail here, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Makijah, Hashim, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. I thought about naming my kids one of those, but she decided against it. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and, he, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Hamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And God, today this is what we want. We want to understand the words that you declare to us. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for the story of your people. Thank you for the truth that you are walking us into. Holy Spirit, come lead us into all truth. Um, Teach our hearts. Teach our minds. I pray that today we would see you more clearly for who you are and understand your words together. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it comes to the concept of change and the concept of of Christian change particularly, uh uh-oh, I forgot to turn my screensaver off, so now you're going to get to see my kids. Aren't they adorable? Although you probably don't have a good picture on that. All right. So um, when it comes to the idea of change and the concept of change, it's important to remember that um, the way that we tend to build things, we tend to build things from a fallen perspective, right? We tend to do things in ways that are a lot more human than they are, than they are divine. Because quite frankly, we're not God, right? And so we don't really have the wherewithal to think with the mind of the Lord, which is why he's given us the Holy Spirit. When we do try and think on our own, though, we try and think with Jesus sometimes. We take our human minds and we try and merge them with what we know about God or what we know about the church or what we know about the Christian ways in which we were raised. And, and it can produce for us some things that look right and some things that sound right, but in actuality are not right. Um, and, and it's that that I want to talk about. I want to start by looking at a, a, a way that I think that we think about change that, um, that, that isn't the way that we see here in Nehemiah what it means to change, right? So change for a lot of times for Christians in our lives, it begins with us thinking about our heart, right? And a lot of times you'll hear people say, look, you, you need to love God with your heart more. Like you need to get your heart in, in there, which you need to have deeper devotion to Christ. So, so discipline yourself better. You know, if you discipline yourself better, if you, if you, if you work real hard at this, then you can get your heart to line up with, with God's heart better, and you can understand things. So, so the idea here is for you to change your heart to be more in line with God's heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I am very unsuccessful in changing my own heart. In fact, I'm just downright lousy at it. And I think the scriptures teach that one thing that we can't do, actually, is change our own heart. That's the whole purpose for the work of Christ, right? It's the whole purpose for the new covenant. The new covenant is what shifts us. Jesus is what shifts our heart. Faith in Christ is what shifts our heart. Because faith is not an issue of the mind. Right? The book of Romans chapter 10 tells us that with the heart, man believes to righteousness. With the mouth, right, we make our confession. Faith is here, not here. But it's faith that changes your heart. But you and I, trying to change our hearts, doesn't work. It doesn't work. But this is where we begin when it comes to a poor process of change. You need to love God with your heart more. Get your heart in line with God more. Oh, but I can't. Then darn it, work harder. And if you work harder, then eventually your heart will line up. Well, that's just not right. 
But that's where this poor concept of change begins. This is, is you need to have deeper devotion to God. You need to have deeper devotion. Get your heart in line more. Sin stops us from having deeper devotion to God. And so what we hear then is, look, okay, so you need to have deeper devotion to God. You want your heart to be more in line with God. The problem is, is that you have sin in your life. And the reason you can't have a heart that's more attuned to God and a heart that's more in line with God is because you're a sinner and you have sin. So what you need to do is confess your sin, which essentially exists of telling God all of the things that you've done wrong, as if he didn't know, right? So get your heart in line with God. Sin's going to keep you from having your heart in line with God. The way that you can get your heart in line with God is to begin with confessing your sin, right? Confession will then lead you to repentance. So because you've now given God your laundry list of sin, the question is, is what's God's response to your sin in this paradigm, in this way of thinking? Well, it's that God hates your sin, and God's pretty sorely disappointed in you for ever going there to begin with. So repentance means feeling really bad about what it is that you did. Confession is you telling God what you did. Repentance is you feeling really bad for it. And once you felt bad enough, then you can go about the act of receiving forgiveness. You can receive God's forgiveness then in that place. So you want to have a heart that's for God, but you don't have a heart that's for God because of sin. So confess your sin. Repent from your sin, right? Turn away from it and feel bad about it. And then receive the forgiveness of God anew. So that then you can walk the way that God wants you to with deeper devotion for Christ. At different points throughout this process are certain emotions that you're supposed to have. When you hear a fiery sermon about having your heart more in line with God's heart, when you hear a, a, you know, a strong word from the scriptures about your heart and how your heart needs to be in line with God's heart, um, or you need to receive God's heart, you need to have deeper faith, more devotion for Jesus, have your Christian life look better, more solid, more, more like God wants it to be. There's a way you should feel there. You should feel inspired, right? You should feel strong that God loves you enough to call you into this. When you think about your sin and your need to confess your sin, when you make your laundry list of sins that God already knows about, that you tell him about anyway, uh, then it's important for you to, to, to feel a certain way about that, sort of sober, you know, with like a sobering reality, like, yes, I did do these things. When you repent of your sin, you should feel bad about your sin. Right? You, you, you should feel lousy about the sin. It's important for you to, to have that. The, the emotion is strongest on the third point in this. The receiving forgiveness, well, that's when you feel relief, right? And not just relief, but release. This paradigm is a way, it's something, maybe it's not true for all of you. It could be called a straw man if you wanted to call it that. But in my experience and observation, it's, it's how pretty typical church works. In, in probably a lot of the circles and places that we come from. I want to change to be more like God. Well, how do I change? This is how you change. You confess your sin, you repent of it, and you receive God's forgiveness, and then you move forward. Work harder, right? Work harder. So if you were to put work harder off on the other side of this, and then you can just make a big cycle out of it. Work harder. Well, I can't work hard enough, but I should be working harder, so I need deeper devotion to Jesus. So i got to confess my sin more, right? Repent of my sin more receive forgiveness more, and it becomes just this self-perpetuating thing that leaves us actually in a rut. It leaves us spinning our wheels when it comes down to it. Absent from this paradigm is grace and mercy. What's, what's very present in this paradigm is human work, right? And, and you're, you're never going to get there. 
you're just never going to get there. But friends, you don't need to get there because this isn't what the scriptures teach about how to change. This is a poor paradigm. This is a poor way of thinking about the concept of change with God. Nehemiah chapter 8, I think, lines out for us a, a very clear way of thinking about change and what it means for us to walk in change that God would have us walk in. The idea that the book of Nehemiah is built on is the concept of building, right? It's the concept of rebuilding, not just of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, although that's important, but actually rebuilding the structure of a nation, not just the structure, but the infrastructure. Uh, Nehemiah is like this administrator, ruler, kind of very uh, um, sensible and and, uh, truth-based, justice-based kind of a leader. And he goes back to Jerusalem after Jerusalem has been completely destroyed by its enemies. And, and the city is without walls. And a city without walls in those days is indefensible. The walls are the major thing. You don't build the city first. You build the wall first. Then you put the city in it. Right? So there's this idea that without walls, there's no defensibility. So Nehemiah hears this call from God to go back to his land and to build the walls of Jerusalem to put these protections back in place, to build the very thing that they need in order to reestablish the next building that he then does, which is to rebuild the people themselves as a people. And that's where we are at in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the beginning of the second part of Nehemiah. Nehemiah works in two pieces, rebuilding the walls, chapters 1 through 7, rebuilding the people, chapters 8 through the end of the book. So at the beginning of chapter 8, we are right at the beginning of this thing. Now, this is a people who have been sent into exile. They've been sent into exile because of their idolatry, right? God was patient. He was long-suffering, as he always is. But God continues to pull them back to himself. They continue to turn away from him. They continue to push back against who he is. They continue to embrace idols. And eventually, God says, this is leading to your judgment to the point that I am going to exile you. Your enemies will come in. They will take you out of your land. They will take you to their land. They will treat you poorly there. But I will not fail you. My promises will remain. But you will learn that I am your God and that I love you. Like God's not going to rest from this concept. Here is a people that need to embrace change, right? I mean, if there's ever a people in the scriptures who so deeply as a people need to embrace change, it's the Israelites here in Nehemiah chapter 8. I mean, they've got a chance. They've been in exile. Some of them have been released to come back to the land. And the question now in the land is, okay, we've got our walls back up. Our city can now theoretically be rebuilt. There's even a temple in place for us to worship God. The key question is still, who are we going to be? Our forefathers were generations and generations of idol worshipers. What is it that God would have us to be? Because if we don't understand what God's saying to us, then we will simply repeat where we've come from. Right? It, th- this thing will own us. So here is a people led by good leaders, Nehemiah and Ezra, who understand their situation and they understand the need for change. There's only one place to start with change, and that's God's word, right? I mean, you've got to see what it is that God wants from you. You've got to hear what it is that God has to say. You've got to understand who it is that God made you to be, or else you're just working off a base of ignorance. 
And so you get to get a bunch of people together that think they know good things about God. All you've got is a collective pool of sanctified ignorance that really doesn't mean anything in the long run anyway. Right? So we start with God's word, which is exactly where Ezra and Nehemiah get, find themselves. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above all the people, right? He was up on a platform. He wasn't better than them. He was up on a platform. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So picture this in your mind, all right? They build a platform. Up on the platform are all the Levites, all right? The scripture, the, the text tells us that if, if, I, if, if, you're, if we're looking at Ezra together up here, right? Ezra's in the middle. He's flanked on either side by Levites, by priests. Nehemiah's up there too as, as, as the leader, the administrator of the people as well. But Ezra's the priest, right? Ezra, Ezra's the scribe. And he opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. So immediately in response to the reading of the word of God is worship. Like the people are there. The people are in it. The people are not standing disconnected from what's happening up on the platform, sort of like, okay, just let's get this over with. Today could be a long day. We're going to read all first five books of the Old Testament. You know, the people are are engaged as the word is being read. The hands are going up in worship. Right. The text continues. If you follow through the story, as the as the word is being read, the tears begin to flow as the as the word is being read. The people are deeply engaging this. They are sensing on their part the need for change. They are sensing who they were versus what God is saying now, and they are being cut by it, right? The word of God is getting in here, and it is messing around with them. They are seeing where their heart is as opposed to where God's heart would have them be. And they're stuck, and they know it. And they bowed their heads, verse 6, and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, and then here's that big line list of uh, Levites, which you can read on your own for your personal edification again. And they all helped the people in verse 7. They helped the people to, to what? To understand the law. While the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, let me ask you, here in verses 7 and 8. Which part of the human structure is being engaged? Mind, soul, or spirit? Mind. Right? This is, this is, all, this is head stuff here. If, if you look at the words. They helped the people to what? To understand the law. This is intellectual engagement. Right? They helped the people to understand the law. To understand means to stand under. Right? So if you're trying to understand someone... You have to come under what it is that they're offering to you. You try to understand your spouse, but still talk the whole time while you're trying to understand them. You're not understanding anything except yourself, right? Because you're standing under you at that point. To understand something or someone, you stand under it. You submit to it. You come underneath it so that it can be given to you from the proper perspective. All right? But this is still an up here kind of a thing. It's still a mind-based work. Understanding is a work of the mind. It's a working through. It's, a, it's an engagement. It's a listening. It's a, hmm. That's coming in here, and it's working in here, and I'm under you. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking with you now. 
while the people remained in their places. Verse 8, they read from the book, right? Reading is a intellectual engagement from the law of God clearly. And they what? And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, right? The, peop- the, the, the word of God is being engaged here with the people's minds. And the Levites are engaging the people's mind. They are, they are making it about their head. Do you see here what God is saying to you? The answer is clearly yes, because the people, right, begin to lose it. The people begin worshiping, and their hands are up, and the tears are flowing, and the people are stricken with the level that to which they have fallen. It, it, it is taking them over. Look at the next verse. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, does anyone else think this is a bit strange? Because what's, if you and I were here at this thing, you know what we would call this? Revival. We would say, this is exactly what the church in America needs, right? We would just be like, yes, God, bring us more of this. The word of God is being read. The people are breaking. The tears are flowing. The hands are up. Worship is happening. Yes. I mean, God's looking at this from all human standpoints. God's looking at this and saying, yep, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Do more of that. Get back in line. Except that Nehemiah and Ezra tell the people, stop. Stop mourning. Stop crying. Stop weeping. Isn't that interesting? Look at what he says next. He doesn't tell them to just stop weeping and mourning. He tells them to go have the party of their lives. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord our God. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then the Levites follow his lead. It's not like Nehemiah is just shooting off at the mouth here. So the Levites calmed the people saying, be quiet. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, what in the world is going on here? Here's the thing. You have the day that the people come together here is the first day of the festival of booths. In the Jewish calendar, this is meant to be a festival of harvest. And the first day of the festival of booths is a party. It's how God set it up. Hundreds of years before Nehemiah and the people ever found themselves in this situation, God said, on this day of your calendar year, according to my law and my decrees, this is what you are supposed to be about. You are supposed to be about the harvest. You are supposed to be about my goodness for you. This is a day of rejoicing. On this day of all days, you rejoice. You do it. Why? Because I said so. You, you, you follow. This is the rhythm that I've laid out for you. First day of booths party. Well, they read the word on the first day of booths. And what happens? It's certainly not a party, right? A a massive morning session breaks out because the people realize what they've done. Nehemiah and Ezra, so interestingly, they put a stop to it because they value God's word to them 
more than they value their own emotional response to themselves. They say we will walk in obedience. We will align ourselves with God first. We will say the same thing that he says, which is that this day is not a day for mourning. This day is a day for rejoicing. And we will then see what it is that God does in us as a result of this. So people, you got to stop. If, if we let you keep going with this mourning and grieving and weeping on this day, we are not in line with God. But isn't this good? Isn't this great? No, it's not. It's not. Not, not in the long run. Why not? Because God said so. Because God said this day is not for that. And we believe that God is right. We believe that God is good. We believe that God is wise and that what he's given us is worth following. But we're changing. Can't you see that we're changing? Can't you see the worship? Can't you feel the goodness? Well, sure. But we're not changing in the way that God lined out for us to change because God lined out for us really clearly what this day is about. So for me to say change looks like this while God is saying this day is for this, someone's off here. And it's certainly not him. Interesting. Let's take a step back from the story for a second to talk about how it is that Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites engage the people and what it is they ask them to do. And let's try and rework a little bit of definitions here while we do it. Whereas the former construct we talked about was deeper devotion by which you confess your sins and then you repent of your sin and then you receive the forgiveness of God. Um, that's not what we see in Nehemiah. Where we see Nehemiah begin is not with a need for deeper devotion and is not with a even a call for confession. Where, where change actually begins when it comes down to it is in repentance. Repentance is actually the starting point for change. The reason this is important is because of, of the concept of repentance. Right? Repentance is a mind-based activity. We, we tend to think of repentance as weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in light of, of what it is that we've discovered about ourselves lately. Right? That, that, that is not the case. We also tend to think of repentance as being like a once or twice a year activity when God really gets a hold of us based on how badly we've blown it. And then we turn around and run back to God. We think of that as repentance. That is also a really poor notion of repentance. Repentance is not meant to be a gesture that Christians just sort of do once or twice a year. Repentance is actually meant to be the posture of our hearts. Because repentance, in its base definition, is that repentance is an act of the mind on the part of a person that turns, aligns, and submits itself to the mind of God. Right? Repentance is a mind-based work. This submission and alignment to God's mind results in an act of the will on a part of a person that turns, aligns, and submits itself to the will of God. Which is exactly where the priests and Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah start with the people. Our forefathers were like this. We do not want to be like that. Our forefathers were out of line with God. They were out of step with God. They did not understand God's mind. We will not be like that. We will align ourselves. That's why they pull the scriptures out. Verses 7 and 8. They understand what God says. 
Where is this working? This is working in their heads. This is about aligning, and, and certainly their minds are lining up with God's mind, right? I mean, there is expression. There is life that is flowing out of this. There is a, oh my goodness, this is what God says. This is who we are. God's over here. I'm over here. We have got to come in line with God. And there's an act of the will on the part as well for the people to choose to raise their hands, to bow their heads, to worship, to engage God in this way. Right? Change for the Christian begins with repentance. And repentance is not an emotional word. If you have an emotional connection to repentance, you have a corrupted file on your hard drive. Ask God to run the antivirus program for you and to give you a better definition. If repentance for you is this really hard thing that you've got to walk through because some preacher gives you a really good word and you feel bad about yourself, that's not repentance. You should be repenting 50 to 100 times a day. And it should have nothing to do with shame or guilt. It should always be about the grace of God aligning you with him again. Aligning you with him again. Right? My most recent act of repentance this morning was when we sang Redeemed by Fanny Crosby. Because frankly, that song gets on my nerves. I don't like songs that don't that have bad poetry. And that's got really bad poetry, in my opinion, because it just repeats itself over and over and over again. It doesn't have a lot of substance to it. But that's a terrible way to think of it. That could very well be your favorite hymn. And I'm sorry if my judgment of it stepped on your toes just now when I told you it. But God, while I was sitting here in my chair, came alongside of me and he was like, hey, calm down. This, these words you're singing, while they might not match your standard of poetic beauty, they're true, right? And what Jesus did is real. So you need to align yourself with me again. Yep, you're right, God. I'm going to come back in line here with what it is that you think about redemption apart from my own judgmental concepts of poetry, right? No shame, no guilt. This is me and dad having a conversation and dad saying to me, hey, you're being judgmental. Why don't you not do that anymore and come do this? Okay. Right. God engaged my mind and engaged my will. I could have chosen to keep judging Fanny Crosby for her, in my opinion, bad poetry, but I don't have the right to do that. I don't need to do that. And that's not what God was trying to communicate to me while I sang about the redemption of Christ. Repentance. Repentance. Who knows what the next one will be? Might be something that feels really, really big to me. Might be something that, that's really, really small to someone else. You know, it, it, it's, it's hard to say. It is an act of the mind that produces an act of the will. And it is meant to be the posture of a Christian, not the gesture of a Christian. And it is not to be linked with shame or guilt. Repentance is a, it is a word without emotive connotation. Right? Mind-based. Change for the Christian begins with repentance, with aligning myself with God. I then actually move to confession. Confession is next. When we think about confession, the, the, the concept of confession carries with it, I think, sometimes of us telling God what it is that we did. God's very aware of what you did. He was there, right? He saw it. He... he, he He's completely aware of what it is that's going on for you. So, so you needing to tell God what you did is somewhat unnecessary. Um, confession, you might need to tell yourself what you did, but that's not between you and God. That's just with you being honest with yourself. 
So, yeah, you should most definitely do that. The word confess in, in, in the text, in the scriptures, means to see the same as. It means to agree. Confession is a very simple concept, but it carries with it the idea of submission, and it carries with it the concept of sight. So you saw the picture of glasses that was up there, right? The question is, is whose glasses are you going to look through? This is confession. Jay, see that? Yes, that's sin. I have not confessed yet. That's sin. Father says, yes, that's sin. For me to confess means I agree. God, I see that the same way you do. That is sin. I have now confessed. I cannot confess without repentance. You will confess the wrong thing if you have not repented because you're not in line with God. Right? That's why change starts here. Uh, change starts in your mind, where your mind engages God's mind to turn from something, to align yourself with God, to submit to his sight, which results in an act of the will that allows for your whole person to line up with God. So that in that place of alignment with God, God can now say to you, based on the fact that you and I are in line, that thing, that's wrong. And confession is you saying, yes, it's wrong. Confession in the book of Nehemiah is Ezra and Nehemiah going, "Uh uh-oh, today is the first day of booths. This is not right. God said, this day, party. What are we doing? This day, sorrow. Who are we going to be? We are going to be the people of God. So we align ourselves with God. God says, grief on this day, not right. We confess, grief on this day, not right. And the Levites go out into the people and say, stop crying. Stop, stop, stop. Stop the mourning, stop the grief, stop the revival. Because this is not God. Oh, but I feel, you don't know what I feel. The emotion that I have, the depth of brokenness that I have, the, 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 the level of heartache that I have over where we came from and what I do or didn't do or how bad of a person I am in these places. Hold on a second. Look, if you're struggling with obeying God in this place where God is saying to not grieve on the first day of booths, hey, you, you can, look, the joy of the Lord's your strength. You can do this. You absolutely can. What it is, the gift of God to you, in that case, joy, is going to pull you through whatever other thing it is that wants to pull you away from being in line with God. All right? So confession, to see the same as. God will supply the sight for you to agree with what it is that he has said. Now, here comes the crazy one. Change begins with repentance. It leads to confession. And God most certainly does want deeper devotion from you. He absolutely wants your heart to be more in line with his heart. He absolutely wants you to understand his love for you and for you to love him more and more with the fullness of who you are. Absolutely, that is the goal. But you can't start with devotion because you can't change your own heart. That's why you can start with repentance because you can control how you think. You can control whether or not you agree with God about what he said about who you are and what it is he's asking you to be. You absolutely can do that. You can read the scriptures and go, I'm out of line. I'm going to get in line. You can hear God say to you, you see that, that's sin. And you can say, yes, that is sin. Devotion, devotion's up for grabs. Devotion gets weird, right? Devotion is so deeply personal that it requires this connection that you establish through repentance and confession. Without the connection that you establish to God's mind through repentance and confession, 
you'll be stuck just trying to work harder to please God more. Devotion comes as a result of repentance and confession. When you align yourself with God and submit your mind and will to his mind and will and turn and change the way he asks you to, when you see things the way that God does and God says that's sin and you agree with what it is that God does, I'm tell- this incredible thing happens. A door opens up. And that door is going to be different for you, 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 different for me. Because that's how God works with us. And God calls us through this door to say, hey, come through this door and experience my love more. Come through this door and experience what it is that I have for you. Come connect to my heart more deeply. Devotion is a move of the heart that connects to and receives God's revealed heart for his children. God loves you uniquely for who you are and where you are. And how you live. God cares and loves your family for who your family is and who you are. God loves your church. God loves your your, your neighborhood, your people uniquely for who you are, where you are. Receiving that heart comes through repentance and confession. You do not start here. You receive this. The people receive this. The, The people in Nehemiah... The Levites run out among them, tell them to stop weeping and crying. You can do this because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now come back to where God is. And the people do. And if you read the rest of chapter 8, 9, and 10, you see that these folks have some one of the most intimate sessions with God of confession and repentance and goodness and life and redemption of the scriptures and a renaming of the people, a reestablishment of the tribes. God reworks their entire infrastructure within their new walls so that they can again hopefully become a life-giving community instead of an idol-worshiping community. Like God does all this for them, but it's because of what happens in the beginning of chapter 8. It's not because Nehemiah is some great leader. Look, you can have the greatest leaders in the world, right? Tim and Josh and Josh, your pastors are fantastic leaders. But if you're thinking about change wrong, it doesn't matter how great your church is or how strong your leaders are or, or, or how often you have your devotions or what kind of music you listen to when you're on your radio on the way to work or any of these disciplinary things that you try because you will never change your heart. You can't do it. But you can align yourself with God. You can see things the way that God does and you can follow his leading when the door to deeper devotion opens. So this takes this construct of this and it changes it to this. Repent, confess, devote. Repent, confess, devote. And that devotion one, that that, that is a different experience every time that you walk through repentance and confession and devotion. I mean, for me and my simple illustration of singing that hymn this morning and becoming judgmental in the midst of it, devotion was a door that God opened to say, hey, do you remember when you were a kid at the small Baptist church you grew up at and you sang this song? Wasn't that a great way to grow up? Like you had a church that really loved each other and really loved God. And here I am thinking, yeah, I did. Dave Smith was at that church too. and I'm sitting next to one of the guys that I used to sing that with back in the day. I tried to sing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the uh, devotion opens like that in, in just the most simple ways of God calling you into like this. Just this door opens. Come in here. Here's a memory. Remember my love for you then? I love you the same way I do now. 
You can also have some major points of devotion, right? What time do I need to be done? Now? Pretty much? You can also have some major points of devotion. <laughs> I'm going to tell another story. Um, quickly. I have two kids with cr- chronic health problems, right? Uh, my, my kids have cystic fibrosis. My daughter, uh, Christy, she, she's our middle child, the oldest one with CF. She was in the hospital um, in St. Louis, where we currently where we lived at the time. She was 12 months old. And if you don't know about CF, it's a horrible thing. It, uh, it affects the lungs, the digestive system, lots of medicine, lots of therapy. And it uh, requires a lot of time in the hospital for a lot of CF kids. My kids are doing great. In case you're wondering, if you didn't know they had CF, you wouldn't know it. Back then, you knew it. When she was a year old, we almost lost her at one point. Um, but I remember being in the hospital. She had been, uh, had her blood drawn like 36 times in four days, something like that. And they had, I mean, she's just a baby, you know. And every vein had failed at this point. They had to put an IV in her head. So there's an IV sticking right here, you know. And she somehow went to sleep. And I was depressed beyond the point of recognition, at this point, I mean, I was just, I was gone. I remember I had my iPod on and I was listening to very depressive music and just sort of like, uh, I mean, I was in a bad spot with God. The last thing I was, was turned, aligned, or submitted to the Father. This woman came to visit me. Her name was Vicki. She was from our church. And Vicki and her husband, Bernie, um, had a two-year-old son named Levi. And Levi was severely handicapped. Um, he, uh, had to be held stable in a wheelchair. They had to feed him through a feeding tube. They didn't expect him to live past the age of, of two years old. And at this point, I think he was about three and a half. Um, and so, I mean, Vicki clearly understood a, a lot of things that I was being asked to learn. And, um, she came to visit and I'm sitting there and it, I, I don't know how she got in because visiting hours were over and they were just complete Nazis about visiting hours at the hospital. But she came in and she sat down. And she said to me several different things. She was only there for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And she she goes, isn't it great to be this lucky? And I was like, no. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, the the amount of love that kids like Christy and Levi require is huge. And God thinks so well of us that he gives us kids that need that love in that special way. Right, this just blew my mind. Because I'd seen Levi. I helped care for Levi at church sometimes. And here I was in this like depressive, just self-loathing state, completely questioning God's goodness, almost accusing God on some levels. And here I am, she's asking me to think of this as grace. And you know, I thought to myself, I've been struggling with this for months. I'm going to try this. So for, for that split second, right, I was like, okay, all right, Vicky, let's do this. <laughs> so I'm saying, so, you're, so I say to her, so you're saying this is God's goodness. She goes, she is God's goodness. And it points to Christy. Is she not God's goodness? And at that point, it was like Neo in the Matrix. It like, like the hospital room sort of melted away. And God took me into this, like, other place where I looked at my daughter, and I was just like, yes. Yes, she is God's goodness. All of her, 100% of her, including CF, she is God's love for and to me. Right? What was that? 
That was repentance. I repented in that moment. God said, see your daughter? Look at her. This is how I see her. Do you agree? Confession, yes, I agree. Vicky, in the spirit, as I saw her, right, she was an angel. Just like this word from the Lord that, that, that God brought through this minister. I felt like Jesus after praying in Gethsemane, you know, um, like, like the, the ministry that was happening. It was just so beautiful in that spot. And God opened a door of devotion that at that point in my life, right then in that hospital room at St. Louis Children's Hospital, was when God said, come in here. Let me show you my heart more. So it could be as small as God saying, you don't need to think about that hymn like that. And reminding me of who I was to this ridiculously huge experience where God writes himself for me. And my perspective of God can be true again. Little change, big change. Repent, confess, then you receive a heart that is after God's heart. Let's pray.